Welcome to the Open Pew Podcast, your home for public theology made practical. We're interviewing faith leaders, public theologians, and so much more. And so if you want a theology show that talks about ministry as it relates to the real world, this might be the one for you. Welcome everyone to the Open Pew. I am your host, Corey, and I'm joined today by Nick. Hello. And Alexia Salvatierra. And I've told, I'm told that I'm pronouncing her name wrong, but I'm sure she can help correct me than that as I allow her to introduce herself. Sure. <laughs> so uh, I guess I should jump in then and do that, right? This is, uh, I'm, the, I'm the Reverend Dr. Alexia Salvatierra, and I um, am a Lutheran pastor. I've been ordained for over 30 years, so I was one of the earlier women ordained in my denomination. Uh, although I often refer to myself as Luther Costal, because I actually, um, <laughs> sounds like a disease, but it's not. Uh, Lutheran theology, Pentecostal spirituality. So there, anyhow, um, a little bit of liberation theology thrown in. So, um, And I am also a professor. I teach currently primarily at Fuller Theological Seminary in Spanish for Centro Latino and in English for the School of Intercultural Studies. And I adjunct all over the place. But um, the other wing of what I do is that I am a congregational and community organizer, um, both on a local level and on a national, international level. I do a lot of international training. I've been doing this work for about 40 years. And I am particularly engaged in how the church responds effectively to the immigration crisis. Um, and I've been engaged in that for around that amount of time. So, but I've also worked with, um, I work interfaith, but I, but I really prefer to work with the church specifically, and usually do. And I really am about how the church um, is part of the transformation of the world in the name and spirit of Jesus. How concretely how that one of the things that I like to focus on with this uh, podcast is focusing in more on the the practical and the the actual the actual doing of it, the public witness, rather than just the the theoretical theological aspect, which is important. Don't get me wrong, but it's also important to know how and why we do these things. And so I kind of want to begin this conversation by by talking about your book. You wrote a book a few years ago now with uh, with a co a co author whose name I cannot remember, uh, Peter Heltzel. Heltzel, thank you. Uh, called Faith Rooted Organizing, uh, and I admittedly I've only read about half of it at this point because I bought it just after reaching out to you in the first place and being told that you would be willing to come on. And so I wanted to have some some baseline understanding of what you've said in the past. So so I'm going to ask you to talk about that a little bit, and kind of go into how we apply that in our in our local churches, which a lot of people listening to this are coming out of local churches. Yeah. So let me give you a very quick history of how that book came to be, and then a couple definitions. So um, I think that I was born with the spiritual gift of justice, which I can, I can unpack that for y'all if you want. I think a lot of us were. Um, and I, uh, I always cared about justice intensely. I always felt the pain of people experiencing injustice, even if I didn't know them in my own body. 
and felt like I had to do something about it. But I never would have done something about it if I hadn't become a Christian in the Jesus movement um, when I was a teenager, because that gave me hope. Uh, before that, I didn't have a lot of hope. So, um, but in the Jesus movement, there wasn't a lot of clarity about um, how justice <laughs> related to the gospel, um, to put it mildly. And so I, I went and got trained to be a community organizer in the Alinsky networks, the, the networks established by Saul Alinsky and part of his school of thought in terms of community organizing, which is the dominant school of thought in the United States. But it comes from a very secular set of assumptions about the world, about human nature, about power. Um, and I think that those assumptions are not false. I think they're just only half the story. That part of how I see the world is that we are called to be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. So that we pay attention to both material and spiritual realities because they're fully real. Anyhow, at the time that I was trained, I didn't know that on the level where I could have talked about it. I just felt, uh, I just had spiritual indigestion after the training. But I did it anyhow. You know, I did organizing in the Alinsky mode. Um, and then I went to, I was part of the, the first sanctuary movement in 1980, where I saw something very different, but again, didn't have the language to talk about it or think about it. And then I was a missionary in the Philippines uh, during the Marcos dictatorship, and I was part of the pro-democracy movement. And that's where I saw a very different kind of organizing, organizing that had spiritual assumptions assumptions that were much more congruent with our faith, and also organizing that was multi-sectoral in that um, it was organized not by geography but by sector. So there would be the mother's organization and the farmer's organization and the student's organization and the Christian organization and the Muslim organization. And I, I remember saying, well, wait a minute, what if you're a mother and a student and a Christian and a farmer? I mean, what are you supposed to do? And where do you fit? And they said, you fit wherever you're called to fit at that time. Where can you contribute the most? So it was this real understanding that you don't organize the same way when you're organizing different sectors. You organize differently because they have different gifts to bring, and they are going to be much more bought in if they bring the gifts that they bring, and the whole movement will be richer for it. So I really saw, so I came back from the Philippines with that perspective that, you know, what does our organizing look like if it's completely shaped from the roots by our faith? And if we can contribute all of our unique gifts to the broader movement for justice. Um, and I um, ended up coming to Clue, which was clergy and lady united for economic justice, where Reverend James M. Lawson, Jr., who is a Methodist, he's a treasure and he's one of yours. Um, he was the chair of the board and he's the person who was responsible for organizing the students in Nashville who did the sit-ins which desegregated Nashville. And uh, he was Martin Luther King Jr.'s theologian of nonviolence. And he didn't like the Alinsky networks any more than I did at that point. He had a methodology coming out of the civil rights movement. And so we sort of put together what I had from the sanctuary movement and from the Philippines and what he brought from the civil rights movement. And we worked with young people to try to make it a methodology that would work for the 21st century. We had a lot of young people involved with Clue. And part of what that meant was making it an open source methodology. That faith-rooted organizing is not a series of steps that you follow. It's a series of questions that you answer in your local context, and then we try to have people exchange best practices. So questions like, what does our organizing look like if it's completely shaped and from the ground up by our faith assumptions? Um, what does it look like to bring our unique gifts as people of faith to the larger movement? 
how do we organize our people to bring those gifts? And if you're trying to answer those questions in the way you do your organizing, you're doing faith-rooted organizing. And then you need to share what you're discovering with other people who are doing it. Um, the book was a snapshot at a certain time of what the movement looked like at that time. It's an international movement. I, we did not create faith-rooted organizing. We just named what God was doing at that particular point in history and is still doing. So um, I've never had the bandwidth to sort of run the movement or facilitate it. We have a faith-rooted organizing um, website, but nobody really does much with it. Um, and we've had a number of informal meetings where I'm mostly connected to the Christian Community Development Association Conference, but also independently, we've done them at Highlander, where we invite faith-rooted organizers from all over the country to come together and share. And those have always just been incredible moments in time with and the Matthew 25, Mateo 25 work that I do actually came out of one that we did in November of 2016. <laughs> it, was, it was a momentous month, and it was a really good time for us to come together and create. And so some very creative things came out of that. Um, so, so yeah, so that's a, it's a movement, and the book is a snapshot in time about the movement. And there is this loose network of people. We sometimes call it the unnetwork of people do this work and if somebody wants to be hooked up with that they can contact me but I don't know what the next time we're going to meet because right now uh, we've been dealing with the crisis at the border since last November and I just don't have really any more bandwidth to, to organize the network but it's out there and if you want to be part of it let me know wonderful <laughs> you just you <laughs> threw it no no that's that's great no I just had to pause for a second and say holy smokes <laughs> No, so so actually, that's that the way you the way you kind of close that out. That's actually like a perfect segue into that uh, that first question and that first line of discussion that I want to focus on is talking about the crisis at the border and and what's going on and what are what is the church? I use the the big C there, uh, the church, the individual denominations, whatever you want to say. What are what is the response that we're having? In, in small churches like ours, like Nick and I are both in rather rural congregations that might not be all that interested or care that much. How can we, uh, how, do, how do we work to, to ignite that, that uh, passion for justice that's kind of, you know, we, we see as being um, ever present throughout the gospel and the scriptures themselves? very distinct questions. I think I did. <laughs> you know, you've asked about the crisis at the border, and to really do that crisis justice, it's a refugee crisis, by the way, that's what it is. I need to say something about our relationship as the U.S. with Central America and the roots of that particular crisis. But you're also asking about our immigration system and what needs to change about it and what the role of the church is in it. That's a different set of questions, actually. Then you're asking also about how local churches get inspired to do justice, and that's a different set of questions. So, what do you actually want me to talk about? First? <laughs> uh, let's let's take them in turn. Let's let's start out at the border, okay. and kind of pull back from there. See, I I like this because you, you're keeping him in line. That's good. Somebody's got to keep Corey in line, keep him focused. You can tell you're a, I can tell you're a professor and that you're you're good at this <laughs> this part of it. <laughs> so. I'm an Enneagram three. <laughs> I I am a I am a word vomit type of person uh, and try to pick up the pieces later. Lovely. <laughs> yeah. So we we're all needed in the in in on the arc 
Um, so, you know, the U.S. has been involved with Latin America, um, actively involved with Latin America, aggressively involved with Latin America forever. I mean, for many, many years, not for the whole life of this country, but almost the whole life of this country. And very particularly, very involved with Central America since the 1930s, 1940s. Um, so that means that we actually intervened in terms of uh, creating revolutions, supporting revolutions, <laughs> supporting governments, et cetera, et cetera. Um, in Guatemala and El Salvador, um, there were civil wars, and Nicaragua also, but in a very different way. There were civil wars that went on for many years that the U.S. Um, propped up. When we stopped funding them, they ended. Uh, they were described as wars between communism and capitalism, but they were actually, in essence, land reform wars. When the war started in El Salvador, uh, 14 families owned or controlled 92% of the land since the days of the conquest. And it was a feudal society, essentially, that people lived on the land and their children were malnourished, even though they worked incredibly hard because so many, much of the profits went to the landowner. So, you know, land reform was a natural, practical goal for people as soon as they realized that it could be a goal. Um, at the time that the land reform movement started, the Secretary of State was the brother of the head of United Fruit. And United Fruit had a sweetheart contract with these um, landowners where we were profiting off of the plantations. So when the land reform movement started, we took the side of the families rather than the side of the people who want to change. Um, and then, of course, since by that point it was the Cold War, Russia took the side of the people who want to change. So they were called communist movements. Uh, in fact, when the movements ended, when the U.S. stopped funding, excuse me, and the wars ended, uh, and they ended right after the U.S. stopped funding them, not a single country went communist. Uh, Nicaragua went leftist, but the other countries went sort of social democrat. So they never were communist revolutions. They were just portrayed that way. Um, during those revolutions, there were enormous human rights abuses, and people fled. During, I, I call them revolutions. They weren't. They were civil wars. During the civil wars, there were enormous human rights abuses, um, many of them supported by the U.S. intentionally, and there were massacres, and people fled, and a number of them fled to the United States. Now, it was the heyday of liberation theology, and so the church, important sectors of the church, were actively supporting the land reform movement, and their people became targets. So at a certain point in El Salvador, if you carried a Bible around and it looked like you were leading a base Christian community movement, you were specifically targeted for torture and assassination and disappearance. So a lot of the people who ran were church leaders. So those people got to the United States and we were, um, our asylum system was rigged at that point so that you had a very, you had received very different treatment if you were coming from a country that was our opponent or if you were coming from a country that was our ally. If you were coming from Russia or Cuba, you just had to be a ballet dancer that wanted to defect, right? It was automatic political asylum. If you were coming from Guatemala or Salvador, you had a much higher bar to meet because those were our allies and the assumption was that we would never support allies that committed human rights abuses. So, um, so when people started fleeing to this country, 
the, they came to the churches for help. They were Christians. And they were, uh, the churches tried to help them individually to get political asylum, which is essentially the same as refugee status. The only difference is you ask for it at the border instead of asking for it in a safe third country at a refugee center or refugee camp, right? So you understand the difference. So we, we tried to help people get asylum and they couldn't meet the bar, even though they really profoundly qualified. So we um, stood for them. That's how the first sanctuary movement started up. We housed them, we stood up for them, we fought for them, and we were instrumental as the church in changing policy. We were instrumental in helping to stop the funding of the wars, and we were instrumental in changing the way that our asylum system functioned. So makes sense so far? You just need to hold on to that. That's a piece of history that's essential for understanding what's happening at the border. Um, I also want to say very clearly that sometimes the sanctuary movement is portrayed as white heroes who put their lives on the line for Central Americans, but it was actually a profound partnership between Central American Christian leaders and North American Christian leaders, and that's part of why it was so effective. And that's going to be important when I answer your third question, so I want to talk to that, okay, about that profound partnership and what it created. Um, when the wars ended, there was no Marshall Plan for Central America. Remember how in you know, Europe, when World War II ended, there was a Marshall Plan for rebuilding Germany economically so that you wouldn't have another war. Um, the countries, Guatemala and El Salvador in particular, I don't know as much about Honduras, um, but Nicaragua also, all those countries were economically devastated. And they had generations of people whose only skill was to kill. Um, so. What happened? Uh, well, you had uh, immediately organized crime, you know, took advantage of the opportunity because it was one way that people could make a lot of money very quickly by being involved with the drug trafficking and human trafficking and guns trafficking. So organized crime sprang up. Um, and then in 1995, we had a, our last comprehensive immigration bill and there was a little line in it that penalized people who had any kind of gang affiliation, uh, even people who were permanent residents. So there were a whole bunch of the kids of the people who ran to the United States who were work, living in very poor areas, working two and three jobs, and those kids ended up um, being targeted by the local gangs who didn't let them join but targeted them, and they formed their own gang in Pico Union in Los Angeles called the Mara Salda Trucha. And then the members of the Mara Salvatrucha were pretty much deported in mass in 1995, 96, 97. Um, and they were deported to countries where they were automatic and wonderful foot soldiers for the organized crime syndicates in those countries. Because uh, they didn't have relatives there, they weren't able to integrate into the society, but you know, it was a, it was a match made in hell. And the Mara Salvatrucha is now probably the most powerful organized crime syndicate, international organized crime syndicate we've ever seen. And um, they are terrorizing increasingly large, they are controlling increasingly large territories of Central America. And um, they are creating human suffering at a level that you can only call a refugee crisis. Um, and I could tell lots of horror stories. And so people are fleeing. Uh, now, we don't know exactly what to do with those people in terms of our asylum system because our asylum system was created at the end of World War II. And it was created to deal with governments that are 
um, oppressing their people as a result of their race, their religion, their political beliefs, um, their membership in a special group, their country of origin, right? They're created for that purpose. But the 21st century is the age of non-governmental organizations, whether we're talking the Mara Salvatrucha or ISIS, international organizations that act like governments in every way. So we have to figure out how to deal with those from an asylum perspective. Um, and that is going to require a recalculation of our asylum system. We're also, you know, and I'm talking internationally, the whole world is trying to figure this out. We're also dealing with climate change refugees, which is only going to accelerate. So we have about 25 million people on the move right now around the world. The U.S. has traditionally taken about 150,000 a year. And that's, that's during both Republican and Democratic administrations. This government, in addition to trying to stop anybody from Central America in entering, and they've had 200 regulatory changes since 2016, most of them focused on that, on stopping people from Central America from entering the United States who are running from this crisis. Um, besides that, they've taken in 12,000 refugees in the first half of this year. They're on track to take in 6,000 in the second half, and they projected taking zero for the year after that. So I know someone who runs international refugee work, and he said there's no way to replace the 150,000 people. You know, when we talk about doing our share, we're not doing our share anymore. And, you know, that we're, I'm not saying that we have to take in every refugee in the world or, or receive every person seeking asylum. I mean, the, we all sang, signed an agreement at the end of in 1948, the whole world, you know, Iran didn't sign it, but most countries signed it. Um, saying that we would take in refugees. We didn't say how many, but you know, people have sort of negotiated back and forth. The whole concept of a safe third country is about people negotiating back and forth about how many refugees or asylum seekers they would take. Um, the problem with this administration is that we don't want to take any. Um, this administration has a hostile orientation towards refugees and asylum seekers, and um, particularly from Central America, and takes no responsibility for our role in the crisis. That's actually fascinating. Uh, thank you for that. And that's that's just one of those uh, that's one of those moments where listening to you, like you you know it's bad, but you don't know how bad. And so so providing the details and things like let, that was. Let me tell you just a minimum. I mean, I could tell you a hundred stories. I'm just going to tell a little teeny story, um, just because I feel like this story for some reason has been this experience has been coming back for me lately, over and over again. Um, we were, early on in the crisis, we were um, doing, a, we had organized working with some of our legal services partners, and I say we at that point, I mean the, the church networks in, in Los Angeles area. Um, the, our legal services partners were doing a pro se clinic because we just don't have enough lawyers for all these people. We don't provide free lawyers for asylum seekers, even if they're children. So um, we were, pro se means they represent themselves, and at least in the early part of their case. Right? So we teach them to do that. Um, so there was a process workshop for the parents, and the church folks were taking care of the children. We were doing babysitting, basically. And I had a nine-year-old that I was caring for. There were a bunch of kids around, but she was coloring, and she was sitting next to me close, and she was looking down. And you know how kids sort of look away, and then they tell you their hearts, right? They pour out their hearts. So she was coloring, and she starts telling me, and she said, Pastor, and I'm going to say it in English. Of course, she said it in Spanish. She, they just arrived a couple days before. 
she said, Pastor, um, they were hitting my older brother. They were hitting him so hard, and there was blood coming out of his nose, and there was blood coming out of his ears, and there was just blood everywhere and everywhere, Pastor, and I was so scared. And my mother took my hand, and we started running. And we ran for a long time. We ran for so long, and then we walked, and I was hungry and cold, and we had nowhere to sleep. And we got here, Pastor, but it's okay now. We're here. We're safe. And I just, you know, my heart just broke because they're not. This woman is doing everything they can to get rid of these folks. Um, so, you know, and then, of course, the church mostly knows nothing about this. Um, the truth is, going back to, you know, your good church folks, is that if they were actually sitting with that child and listening to her and seeing her hollow eyes, refugee children have these hollow eyes, right? They would be there in a moment. They would be there in a second. You know, they would say, well, maybe I don't understand this big picture of all these laws and policies, but I understand, you know, a little Christian child, right, who is in desperate need of help. But they don't. They don't know that child. And, you know, the challenge is when they're in rural areas of the United States, that's a long ways away from the border. How will they know that? Particularly when we have um, competing news feeds that don't even focus on the same subjects, let alone give the same information. You know, I was at the gym a little uh, about, I do go to the gym in the midst of all of this. It helps me survive. Um, but I was at the gym and there were two television sets on and one was Fox News and the other one was you know, MSNBC. And uh, every 20 minutes, no lie, maybe even shorter than that, there was, a, there was a Fox News article on an immigrant who had committed a crime. And every 20 minutes, there was an MSNBC uh, piece on the Russia stuff and, and the president. There was nothing of the, either of those stories on the other channel. So, you know, we're not even looking at the same subject. And neither channel was dealing with my nine-year-old. Except, you know, once in a while, I mean, I, I think most of the people on the left don't really know much about what's actually happening at the border or immigration or asylum or any of those things. Um, and so you end up with these, they would be funny if, I was, I was a morbid humor, you know, you, for me. <laughs> it's with these fights in the media that just have no relationship to reality. Like the fight where the president said that he was going to send all the people at the border to sanctuary cities. And the sanctuary cities were like, yeah, we'll take them. Um, well, what, what nobody realized is that people at the border don't stay at the border. They get sent to detention centers around the country, places like Tennessee you know, in places like rural Florida that are way away from anybody who could protect or defend these people or stand for them. And that's how everybody who's in, you know, who runs the system likes it, right? So, you know, ICE was like, no, don't take people out of our centers in Tennessee and build centers in San Francisco. What are you talking about? <laughs> but it's like nobody really actually knows what's happening. So, you know. The, the fights and the news have just have so little relationship to reality. Well, can I ask a, a, about something involving that? Is one of the things I feel like I've noticed is uh, 
Well, you, you're an organizer and an activist and dealing with all these things, and, and you've done a lot. So I wonder what you've noticed on how uh, social media has affected how some of this works as well, because, you, yeah, you have the news stations becoming more polarized and focused on their specific details, but I've often felt like uh, some of my more liberal brothers and sisters will will see an image, will get upset about it, we'll talk about it for a week, and then we'll move on to the next thing. We stay yeah. in sort of our bubble, and then we feel – the sense I always get is that we feel like we did our part for activism by being upset about it on Facebook, right. and then we don't actually have to go out and do anything more. So I guess one of the questions I have is in this era of social media and things being the way it is, do you think it is – easier or harder or what are the challenges or what has become easier with the way society has shifted in this way for getting volunteers or getting people involved and actually helping with things so i actually have a recipe for this that i think is the answer internally and externally so let me say something about the external situation of the role of the church in this crisis so in 2007 and 2013 we had completely bipartisan immigration reform bills. When, the, when we actually took the elements of those bills and pulled people across the country, we had 75% support. And, but those bills were not able to pass. Um, we were, the second time around, we got closer. We passed the Senate, but it didn't get taken to the floor of the House. We would have passed it if it had been taken to the floor of the House. And the church was a big part of making that happen. But uh, why didn't they pass with that kind of level of support? They didn't pass because the average American never calls your congressperson unless it's about you, right? And if you're an immigrant or a, a related to an immigrant, you never call your congressperson because you don't have any hope that they'll listen to you because you know you're a minority. Um, so when we didn't pass in 2007, a number of us asked ourselves, what is the one institution in our society that is mandated to care passionately about people that are not us? If we don't do that, we're not disciples of Jesus Christ. And what is the one institution mandated to give people hope when there's no hope? You know, so we knew that people had to Christians had to get passion and hope. Well, the only way we know how to do that is by being the body of Christ. That when people who are suffering directly are intimately connected as peers. So engaged in joint mission with people who are removed from the situation, but are their brothers and sisters, that's when you get the exchange of passion and hope, which fuels sustained activism. It's the only thing that can fuel sustained activism. So that partnership, which happened organically in the first sanctuary movement, is critical to actually fueling the kind of activism that makes a difference. The difference between where we were in 2007 and where we were in 2013, in terms of how much closer we got, was the evangelical immigration table. So the church has an enormous power and role in this, in this creation of coalitions that exchange power and hope, that exchange, excuse me, passion and hope and fuel activism. Now, we also need that internally because we're not the body of Christ if we're not crossing the lines, right? I mean, the you know, John 17, the world knows that Jesus has come because of the unity of the body. Well, the world doesn't care if Methodists and Lutherans get together, really. We don't look any different to them. But if immigrant and non-immigrant believers are in intimate fellowship and joint mission, that just wakes people up. The church becomes, right? So what am I saying? 
I'm saying that you got to get to know the people who are who share a common faith and are a different color and have a different life situation than you. And you've got to get to know them not by helping them with charity, but by working together in joint mission. That's the magic key. That's the magic key to transforming your people. It's the magic key to transforming the world through the church. So now it's not simple. The only way it can work is with what we call puentes. Puentes are bilingual bicultural millennials who can form bridges. Uh, in, our, in our context, they're bilingual bicultural. Now what I want to say to you is that uh, you may say that we don't have any uh, Hispanic immigrants in our neighborhood. You, you may actually be wrong. I was in Orange City, Iowa about four years ago where they said that to me, we don't have any Hispanic immigrants. And then we realized that 20 miles away, they had a whole town of people working in the dairy farms who were all Hispanic. And so we managed to get some of the pastors and Christian leaders from that town together with Orange City, and that was pretty powerful. So they may be there, and you just may not know that they're there. But whether or not brown people or black people are there. And if you start down this road of intimate relationships of joint mission for justice, it, it expands beyond a particular group, right? Um, so, you know, but those, forming those relationships has to be an intentional strategic priority and not forming them in the traditional way of charity or of occasional joint worship services. It has to be the leadership first getting together and saying, how do we create this, right? How do we create things where our different ways of seeing the world um, and uh, where we can build bridges across them. You know, the church is the hope on this because otherwise there is no, there's almost no place in our society where people have an opportunity to, to do this, right? Except the church. So that's my soapbox, friends. That's what <laughs> It's a good soapbox. <laughs> I try to help it because, because social media relationships, I'm sorry, I am old, so I probably don't understand how real they feel to younger people but they're not real in very important ways. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I I agree. And I think that as much as social media can connect us in different ways, I think it's stunted us in a lot of uh, very important practical ways, like, like organizing. It's tricked us into thinking we've organized when we've done nothing. Yeah, um, and, and so many of the fights, let me just say one more soapbox thing. One thing that makes me weep on a regular basis is that I think this president is really good at distracting people into symbolic fights so that they ignore real ones. Let me just give you one example. I'm going to be very <laughs> Huge, huge battle over the statues, remember? You know, when Bree was a national hero with a number of us for climbing up and getting rid of statues. Well, quietly, while that was going on, Jeff Sessions restored a policy that had been thrown out during the Bush administration for being so oppressive that had to do with confiscating the goods, all the possessions of people who um, had, were drug folks involved with drugs in some way had come into their house, right? So they would, you know, these people would be accused, right, of collaboration with drug folks, and their possessions would be confiscated. What the policy was that Jeff Sessions changed back to was that even if they were later declared innocent by a court, 
their possessions would still be kept. That was the original policy that the Bush administration got rid of because it was so oppressive, that even if they were innocent, that their possessions would be kept. Jeff Sessions quietly restored that policy while the statues were going on. What do you think has more impact on the daily lives of black and brown people? What do you think? Duh, right? But all of the national attention was about the statues. I, I'm not saying that symbolic fights are meaningless. I'm saying that there are real fights that we are being distracted from having because we're all having symbolic fights and all is going there. He's very good at distraction. Yeah. Uh, like with with right to it. Greenland most recently, as well as just today, the uh, his Messiah tweet uh, that that he put out just this morning. You know, if he couldn't do it if we didn't go along with it. Mm -hmm. If we jump at all the red meat and get outraged by each thing he said, I mean, it's sort of come on. You know, we know who he is. Why are we keeping a constant level of outrage? And particularly when that outrage, in my experience, is not translating to the actual willingness to support whoever the opposition candidate is. I, I had a conversation the other day with Emmanuel, who I love. I love her. She's one of our leaders. And I was we were both talking about how we would support a piece of pizza if it was the opposition <laughs> candidate. And then and then I I said, Well, it's so good to hear you say that. I said, So if Biden is the candidate, will you support him? And she said, Oh no. I went, okay, so you would support a piece of pizza, but not Joe Biden. All right. <laughs> you know, <laughs> translate all the options, translate into the sort of willingness to do whatever is necessary to fight him. And I am not taking a position on a candidate right now. Please don't misunderstand me. Mm -hmm. I'm saying that, that we live in a symbolic universe, and if it translated into a real universe, that would be one thing, but it doesn't. Right? So, so that's the challenge. That's the challenge for all of us is to not just be moment, but what do we do to make our relationships more real and to ground ourselves in what is actually happening to people and what needs to happen to change it. Can I, I'm gonna kind of ask a slightly diverting question. It, it relates, I think, but I, it just made me think of this. Um, we're talking about the creating opposition because this administration's bad, and I agree with that completely. Um, I tend to not be much of a partisan person, though, typically speaking, and it's interesting that the narrative is very uh, that Democrats are the only ones uh, who would have the interests of immigrants in mind, and I and I do see that it's a narrative, but it also seems to be a reality. But I guess my question is. What things can some of us do maybe to shift it so that it doesn't seem so partisan? Because yeah. I've got people who might be more sympathetic within the church if it didn't seem like it was just a, you know, demonic, democratic, you know, talking well, point. Let me say to you guys that in 2005, there was a 5% difference between Democrats and Republicans on immigration. And as you heard me say about bipartisan legislative proposals, it's not a partisan issue. A system that is, we're not talking open borders here. Nobody's talking open borders, even though the truth is we had open borders with Latin America until 1965. But nobody's talking open borders. You know, we're saying we want a system that is effective, logical, just, and humane. 
everybody wants that. And we actually have very similar ideas about what that needs to look like, right? So this is not a partisan issue at all. It's become a partisan issue. But in fact, Obama deported more people than anybody in history up until that point. I have worked, I've been working on this for 40 years. I have worked productively with the Bush administration, with the Obama administration, with Clinton, with Reagan, who passed you know, the, the amnesty. I mean, we have worked as, as people working in this arena with about Republican Democratic administrations over and over again. It's not a partisan issue. It's this particular administration that I am, that is so terrifying to me in terms of how it is dismantling not just the bad aspects of a system, but the good aspect of the system. So the aspects that are life-giving and fair and effective. So, and I could go into details. It's, they've helped to worsen the crisis at the border in multiple ways, which I hope are not intentional. But so I am not talking about Republicans or Democrats. I am talking about this administration. And I'm not even saying that everything this administration does is terrible. I don't personally understand why the economy is doing well, and I don't have automatic knee-jerk reactions to that in terms of, oh, well, it's this, I don't understand. And I think it's a good thing that the economy is doing well. So I'm not saying that everything the administration does is horrible, but, but in terms of human rights, in terms of fundamental human rights, in terms of an understanding that we are all in this together, I think this administration is, is doing things that are truly demonic. And I, I don't have any other word for it. We have to fight it. If we could fight it with the Republican candidate, you know, I said I would vote for a piece of pizza, you know, and for it too. Anything to stop this kind of violation of human rights that's happening because it's real people, it's real families, and we can come together around it across these lines. And the church may be the one place we can do that. And I'm saying, and I'm not just saying that Republican and Democrat are the only political alternatives. Most of the young people I know are neither. There's something else. The Greens maybe is a better way to put it if we had a Green Party in the United States. But it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what your brand of politics are. These are basic Christian values. They're very core. You know, I have a good friend who's, who's far right wing. We go back many, many years and we love each other. We're in music stuff together. But we have interesting conversations. We've stayed in contact and stayed connected. But he said to me, you know, he's an, he's a, he's an atheist. Um, and he said to me, you know, I, I see most, most Christians support my position. And he said, and I'm happy to have them. You know, he said, but honestly, wasn't Jesus a kind of hippie? <laughs> he says, I think he agrees more with you, honestly. <laughs> yeah, like, why can you see that? You know, 80% of the white evangelical church can't, you know? Yeah. <laughs> well, I got about 100 theories on that, but uh, that's that's not what we're here to talk about. <laughs> right, right. We could we could have a whole long conversation about possession. And... Is this like all about loving everybody? You know, yes. Um, so my the soul of my question, I guess, was, because I agree with you, it's not a partisan issue, but it's become one. And I guess my question was, how are, how do we heal that divide? And it seems like your answer ultimately is this administration needs to be defeated one way or another. And that's part, from the political realm, the no, only way there's going to be. That's not what I'm saying is my first and foremost. But I'm saying well, sure, sure, sure. is that we have to build relationships with people, not only on the other side, but with the people between the people who are directly suffering the most and the most affected and the people who could be packing their parachutes. You know, that we we have to build that, we have to be the body of Christ. That's my solution, is to be the body of Christ. 
then we will do what we have to do politically to heal our country, right? Including whoever is our president. I, I'm not of the flavor that thinks that who the president is the most important thing. We stopped this administration around the separation, the widespread separation of children. We've gotten detention centers closed for children when they were not giving them soap. I mean, we, we, we can move things even in the face of this administration or a similar administration if we are united in Christ and we have our feet on the ground in terms of what needs to happen. You know, so I'm not under, I don't, I do think that this administration is doing things that are demonic. I'm not going to pull back from that, but that's not what I think, that the answer is not to change the president. Because particularly because I think that, I mean, or that's not the core of the answer, because I think that he's a symptom. Even my right-wing friend says, he said something to me the other day, because he, you know, as a died-in-the-wool conservative, he has some problems with President Trump as well. So, you know, the other day he said to me, I think we have the president we deserve. That's an interesting comment, right? That that our president is the, the expression of the will of the people at this moment in history. And that's terrifying. So I think we have much deeper work to do than just changing an administration, right? Yeah. Thanks for clearing that up for me. Because we were, we were just talking so much about the presidency specifically. I'm glad to have sort of cleared that up. And yeah, I've noticed the same sorts of things with my Republican family as well. I'm definitely the most liberal person in my entire family. And so they're very disenchanted with Trump. They were even during the election stuff and everything too. You know, they don't see him as the Republican. They don't want this to be what the Republican Party is or becomes. And so they're, uh, they defend him as much as they feel like they have to to follow their party line, but they, I know they're, they're not happy with things. So You know that in North Carolina, I don't know if this is a rumor or the truth, but it's a great rumor if it's a rumor. But people said that, uh, you know, the Republicans who were trying to get people to vote were giving out clothespins for people to hold and put on their nose. Like, hold your nose and vote for him. Oh, man. <laughs> so, That's intense. You know, I mean, they just love how popular he is. He can take down a, re a good Republican senator like Jeff. He has the ground truth to take down Jeff Flake, who was one of the best Republican senators in immigration that we've ever had. He took him down in Arizona. And he didn't take him down because he even disagreed with him. He took him down because he thought he was insubordinate. I mean, I, I lived under a dictator, and boy, he smells the same. He just can't, he just can't uh, get away with it in the United States so far, thanks be to God. Um, but he really has all the dictator, dictatorial impulses. And I lived under a dictator, so I know how that is. Um, I'm not saying he's Hitler. I'm just saying he's cut out of the same mold as every other dictator I've ever worked around and lived under. And I've lived under one. But um, so, you know, I am, I don't, I want to say that I, I am ringing alarm bells saying, please do get out there and please do do something about this administration if you can. But I'm saying that if that's our priority, we won't be able to do anything about the administration. The priority needs to be, we have a spiritual sickness as a country and the church is aiding and abetting it rather than healing it. And we really need to, to be about the serious work that needs to be done to heal it. So here, um, Corey, I'm asking so many questions. I apologize. I know it's, nope. it's your podcast, nope. but I got you do another you. question. 
So Corey and I have both gotten some, we're both young pastors. We've not been doing this very long. So we're still cutting our teeth as it were. And uh, we're adjusting to some of the kind of feedback most pastors have probably gotten very used to getting uh, from their congregants and and whatnot. But uh, we're pretty outspoken guys, both of us. uh, And I know we've both talked about these sorts of issues or other sorts of issues that are perceived as political issues from the pulpit and gotten feedback from congregants telling us to be less political, that it's not the pastor's job to be political, uh, at least from the pulpit, but probably not at all. Uh, Separation of church and state, everything like that. And it's been interesting to try to find the line between trying to preach a message that is going to be heard and not just written off while also not ignoring issues that are out there. I guess I'm, you are a pastor. I'm curious what your perspective is on pastors being uh, political. And I put that in air quotes from the pulpit. Uh, how much it's, should we be or not be? Uh, what does that look like? It's, how it's, is it effective? The, the question of pastoral versus prophetic, Nick, I think might be a good way to dumb it down. Sure. Thanks. And I want to say some hard things to you, so Kat, let me say mijo about the both of you, <laughs> so that I can say these hard things, so that's the heart that I'm saying them from. <laughs> I, don't, I don't preach political sermons, friends, because I think that that's a, a version, it's a version of what you were saying earlier about social media. I've said something tough on social media, and therefore I think I've responded to the problem, right? This is not an intellectual problem. Right? This is not something that you're going to say the right thing and people are going to be changed. That's not what it is. It's really, this is um, trench warfare, spiritually. This is stuff that has to happen sitting at a dinner table and listening to people's fear and pain and helping them to reflect more deeply on what's actually causing it. Right? This is, this is getting people to know each other who have who come at this from different angles, right? This is not something that you solve from the pulpit, right? I mean, I'm Lutheran. We believe that the job of a pastor is to take people, is not to give them information from the pulpit. That's teaching. Teaching is different from preaching. Teaching, yes, you've got to do some good teaching, right? And the teaching needs to, I mean, I love Methodists, I love John Wesley. The teaching needs to be with the Bible in one hand and the newspaper in the other, as Karl Barth said, right? You gotta teach that way, and you gotta teach that way, and you gotta develop disciples who who actually have information that's critical for them to have about the world and about the way that the gospel speaks into the world. Yes. Preaching is a different thing. Preaching is about moving people through death to resurrection every week. That's what Lutherans understand it to be. Which means that it starts with a breaking an awareness of our sin that breaks you and then uh, goes from there into an awareness of the power of the gospel and of Jesus. And that goes to a place where you get a heal enough that you want to go out into the world and love. Then the teaching tells you how, right? And there's a whole controversy in Lutheran church about whether you should include any of that in the sermon, whether the third use of the law comes into the sermon. And a lot of people say it doesn't and some people say it does. I think you can do it, but you have to do it in a way that doesn't get in the way of the first two steps, or you haven't done your preaching. So those are my hard words. I, you know, I heard somebody recently at the seminary that I, I heard the new homiletics professor, and I cried because she doesn't do that. She preaches political sermons, 
it's like there she's very hip you know she's she's way out there hip now nadia bolts weber on the other hand is a true lutheran <laughs> she preaches the gospel man she doesn't get up in the certain thing without preaching the gospel and she has tattoos all over and she's you know politically probably to the left of me you know it's it's a it's a way that we understand what our role is as pastors and i want to say that i understand my role as a pastor um it's about building a certain kind of community it's about building a missional community and there are a bunch of ways i do that and my only tool is not preaching preaching is one of many tools that i have and if i rely too much on that tool for everything i'm in trouble it's like the social media problem that you described earlier and a lot of young pastors particularly young pastors do that and sometimes i i don't mean that you know if you just had something happen that everybody's talking about that you don't mention it from the pulpit you better mention it from the pulpit just do it in a way that's different from if you were teaching. You're not there to teach. And you're certainly not there to express yourself. Okay, I'm gonna say that again. You're not there to express your own particular feelings and perspectives. You are there to communicate, not to express. So if you preached a really prophetic sermon that really expressed how angry you are, but you didn't communicate, I'm sorry, you just didn't do your job. In fact, something a little worse than that, right? You violated something sacred so yeah i wouldn't be popular at a, at a liberal seminary <laughs> <laughs> I, I really appreciate your feedback it's mm -hmm. good for us to hear and i think there's some definitely good truth in there for us to be taking in mm -hmm. so so thank you yes thank you and you know in the end the other thing i want to say somebody said this in seminary to me one of my mentors and it's just the deepest truth love your people Love covers a multitude of sins. Love your people. They will forgive you your differences if you love them. And that's the hardest part, right? That's really the hardest part, that when you're mad at somebody, you love them. But but it's the only... People do not listen to somebody challenge them who they don't think loves them, who doesn't actually love them. It doesn't work. You know, you have to fix the dang roof. If the roof matters to them, you know, they're not going to come take care of the nine-year-old refugee if they if you didn't fix the roof <laughs> if you didn't take seriously their pain and their fears and their needs nothing's gonna happen mm -hmm. and they are lovable they are lovable they are even the ones that you hate you know <laughs> I mean, they're because if you see them as children and we are all children right you know you love your kid even when they're having a tantrum you might want to kill them but you still love them <laughs> They're lovable. Yes. Well, I, I think that's a good uh, I think that's a good because we're we're on an hour already. I think that's a good place to kind of close it because it's one of those one of those pieces where it's like where do we go from there? Yeah, no, it's a good. Answer. Um, and and you kind of we we had an interest. I I noticed as you were talking about the uh, the you wanna the the way the way you preach the the death to resurrection. You kind of did that with this conversation. Yeah. <laughs> I, I didn't think about it that way, but you're right, I did. <laughs> Thank you. Yes. Um, and so, yes, I want to... That... Lutherans of my generation, we were, like, steeped in this stuff. Yeah, we... <laughs> Maybe the new ones, not so much, but we were. Well, I want to thank you so much for coming on. Um, and I, I really appreciate it. And Nick, do you have anything you'd like to say to close it out? 
I just really appreciate speaking to you. I mean, it's I, Corey asked me this yesterday if I wanted to come on and do this, and and I looked you up and I was reading your bio on the website and I was looking through some of your work and I'm very impressed with some of the stuff you've done and I'm hoping to get a hold of that book and give it a read and it's just really cool to be able to talk to people like you who are doing good things in the world. You're inspiring to young pastors like us who are trying to figure out what any of this means practically for us. So uh, thank you. I, I want to say again, just a couple little teeny things. One of them is that you are welcome to contact me, either of you. I do a lot, a lot, a lot of mentoring. Um, my my formal mentoring plate is full right now, but I do a lot of informal. Like if you just have a question you want to run by me, it might take me you know, a couple few days to get to it, but I will write you back. It's email that I work. I don't do Instagram. No, 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 no. But you can write me an email and I will get back to you. So that's one. The other one I, I just want to say to you is, um, I had a young pastor say to me the other day that we were talking about white supremacy and how you teach people about white supremacy. Um, and I said, I, I, don't, I use biblical language, I don't use political language. And she said, I feel like a traitor to my friends if I don't use the, the political phrase. And that hit me very deeply. We're so tribal. And we're so tribally divided right now that we feel like a traitor if we don't express things in a certain way that is loyal to our tribe and the way that our tribe sees the world. And I just felt for her, and I feel for all of you. I think it's really true right now that you know, you're know you damned if you do and damned if you don't. And, but I do think that the answer really simply is, let's root in what is eternal, in what is universal and contextualize it in the moment the best we can, but root in it. I said to her, you know, really feel free to use biblical language. It's what lasts, right? And, you know, and then contextualize it as you need to or whoever you're with, right? Like don't feel like your loyalty to your tribe needs to be greater than your loyalty to your God. Mm. And blessings, blessings on your ministry. Yes. Thank you. Thank and you so much. Yes. And I hope the podcast is helpful out there thank you and I'll, I'll send you the link if you're interested when I have it all uploaded and everything yeah I can send it to my daughter she might like it I, mean, I, don't, <laughs> I don't pay attention to podcasts but she might okay <laughs> she might actually listen to it I'll see, I have a 26 year old she might actually listen to it okay <laughs> okay so thank you yes thank you Hey, thanks for listening to the Open Pew Podcast. If you enjoyed the Open Pew, you should check out our network, DisruptiveDisciples.com. That's DisruptiveDisciples.com. Want to get involved? Well, you can drop us a line on Anchor. Leave us a voicemail and you might be included in a future show. We would love hearing from you.